An outrider is a cowhand who rides away from the herd to keep the cows from straying. It's also someone who rides alongside or out in front of a vehicle or parade, leading the way or protecting the main body. To paraphrase from the book Outrider by the poet Ann Waldman, the outrider is not an outsider, but someone, perhaps even an outlaw, who rides parallel to the mainstream, is the shadow and the conscience of the mainstream, a spiritual insider practiced in negative capability who travels where the mainstream can't go. Welcome to the Outrider Podcast, a show for the literary outrider. Welcome to the Outrider Live, number three, Words and Music, with Chandra E.A. D. Piazza and Rhea Sewell. And Outrider Live is a production of the Outrider Podcast, which is hosted by me, Jason Quinn Malat. So you're going to get to hear me babble for a little bit because it's my show. Um, before I introduce our performers for tonight, I need to take care of some uh, business. Tonight's event would not have been possible without the generosity of Brian Cunningham. This is his place who is letting us use this space, so be kind, pick up after yourself, all that fun stuff. I'd also like to thank my producer, Heather Ann Eden, for arranging this with Brian and for her hard work in making all of my uh, crappy recordings as listenable as possible. I am working on my sound recording skills and buying appropriate gear, which should make her job easily easier and ultimately make this podcast sound a whole lot better. So after the show, give her a hug and your sympathies for having to listen to my mess. Okay, so for those who were not at the first two live shows and who have not heard of or listened to the podcast or know who the hell I am, my first novel, The Evolution of Shadows, was published way back in 2009, and it was an indie next pick and a 2010 Kansas Notable book. Since then, the publishing world has not been kind to me. So I've been doing this Outrider podcast since 2013 for no other reason but uh, masochistic compulsion. This show started out as a conversational show, and I've chatted with a number of writers you may or may not have heard of. People like Paul Statonge, Troy James Weaver, Teresa Romaine, Andrea Portes, Timothy Schaffert, Taylor Molly, Laird Hunt, Brian Ferry, Darren Dufresne, Ed Skoog, Peter Guy, Scott Phillips, and of course, Emily St. John Mandel, who did Station Eleven, everybody, anyway. I still occasionally do the conversations, but I, since I generally only talk to writers I already know or whose work I admire, I've branched out and done other things. There's been an extended deep dive with uh, my friend uh, Stephen McClurg about into uh, writing and resistance in the Trump era, uh, as well as craft discussions and writing exercises. I did a six-part series on James Joyce's Ulysses with my poet friend Delia Tramontina, and then a crime and detective fiction series with Paul Fecto and Todd Robbins, and recently put out a uh, seven-part series with uh, the writer and performer Jen Zukowski called Problematic Badass Female Tropes, which, if you haven't listened to, it's a lot of fun. We used to drink each other under the table in grad school. Well, drink other people under the table and into bathroom stalls. That story might have got out of hand. But we're a lot of fun. And I just put out a short little piece, a one-on-one conversation with Todd Robbins, because he just published 
or just started releasing this literary journal here in town, Vautrin. So you guys need to head to Watermark. You can only get it there. Now, because I've hitched my literary wagon to a lineage that believes in community building, openness, mutual support, activism, and what the poet Jack Spicer called oppositional magic, even though that doesn't really apply to what I'm doing here, Todd's new literary journal is available at Watermark, and you have to get it there. You can't get anywhere else. If you're a writer, this contains fiction, poetry, essays, book reviews, and all sorts of fun stuff. I've got an essay in here. Scott Phillips has a short story. So this is where I'm going to get preachy, and I am going to read what I wrote here because I think it's important that I get it right and not bumble around like an idiot. Of all the arts in Wichita, the literary arts is the least recognized and the least funded and the most isolated. It's up to those of us here tonight and listening online later to stay engaged with each other, to wave the flags of other local writers as well as our own. It's easy as a writer to stay in our little isolated writer caves and be content, or to look at places like New York or San Francisco or wherever and wish we were there with all of that activity. Open mics don't last very long here because it relies too much on a single personality to do the organizing, and the format is too chaotic, too open to being hijacked by those who think that sharing their maudlin journal entries is an appropriate substitute for a good therapist. The various writers groups like the KWA or KAC are doing good work in their way for some writers, but I've never fit in with their vision and their offerings have never met my particular needs as a writer. But I would encourage all of us to give those groups a fair shake, maybe even reach out to them and invite them to, well, things like this or something else that you do. Again, think of Spicer's oppositional magic. The key to it is being and acting on good faith and respect. And if you've known me a long while, you'll know I've come to that notion through a lot of my own struggles with my own sense of control, snobbery, elitism, arrogance, and I'm working to control that, to be open, but still, I have a rule, and that's don't be fucking boring. <laughs> so, our performers tonight aren't boring. Yes, I am the master of the segue. So, I first met Rhea Sewell back around 2005 or 2006 through mutual friends associated with the old theater on consignment. Rhea is originally from Lindsburg, Kansas, but was lured to Wichita by a music scholarship to WSU, but she mostly studied sociology, women's studies, and English. And on top of working full-time for the WSU Foundation, finishing a BA in 17 years with no student loan debt. What? Okay. <laughs> She's been playing in rock bands of one stripe or another since 94, including such acts as Half Mad Poet. Is that seventh, eighths, quick? Like fractions for a little while. Janet, Auga, and most consistently, False Flag ICT with Jarrett Schistler, Tracy Saylor, and Pete Studman. Yep. Right on. She played at the 1998 Lilith Fair show and has opened for Joan Jett. Twice, motherfucker. False Flag ICT is getting ready to record their fifth collection of songs, and you can get their EPs, Rubber Blue Steam Fuck Punk from the inside and celestial download on iTunes. And Rhea has been working on a solo project and you'll hear some of those songs here tonight. I'm normally a drummer, I don't know if you said that, but. Normally a drummer. 
Normally everything. You're pretty A cool. normal drum. <laughs> um, I'm not going to tell you how I met Chandra. Chandra E.A. D. Piazza grew up in Wichita and got her BGS and MFA from Wichita State University. She's published three collections of poetry and in 2013 won the Kansas New Voices Award for her collection, A Short History of Our Love, which was published by Finishing Line Press. Her work has appeared in print and online in journals like the Cimarron Review, the Chiron Review, and Muzzle Magazine. Chandra is the founder and editor of the online journal Poetry for the Masses, and although the journal is dormant at the moment and not accepting work, she plans to start publishing new work from established and emerging poets in 2020. Currently, she is working on a new collection that she hopes to complete before the end of this year. Recently married to Anthony Di Piazza, Chandra has a daughter, Lyric, plus some cats and dogs that she is consistently surprised that under her care haven't been lost or run away. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> the rest of the show is theirs, so I'll be back to tell you about other stuff. We have copies of Chandra's collection and some CDs from Rhea. If you would like to buy those at the end of the show, come and see me or Rhea. So let's get started. Um, so I don't usually dedicate my readings to anyone, but tonight I'd like to dedicate my reading to my husband. We're newlyweds. We've been married um, almost six weeks, excuse me, as I put on my reading glasses, hence the fun of turning 45, because I don't know if I would be where I am right now without him. Um, and I'm going to be reading mostly poems from my collection, which you're welcome to buy a copy of from Jason, A Short History of Our Love. But I do have a few newer pieces to read, and we'll get to those later. So the first poem is called Things I Don't Tell You. When I was six, I woke up on a humid June night, covered in sweaty, a sweaty mess of chigger bites and Bill's cock in my mouth. My peach panties had slid off while I dreamt of salt and ocean. The next day, I couldn't find them between the baseboard and the green army cot. For days, I smelled like stale beer and cum. Once. I ran through Jeremy's anti-Irene strawberry patch, throwing off my clothes so he couldn't pour down my cutoffs, the bucket of toads they had trapped on the creek bank. He threw the bucket down as I fell hard into the soil. I could not escape his hands or kisses on my small blossom breasts. I sat on the bank of the Arkansas River after an ice storm wearing just my fake rabbit fur coat and pink moon boots three days after Christmas while my mother slept her last hangover off. I ate blood oranges from my stocking through gritty pills onto brown river ice while the wind blew a man's voice across the river that told me to get off. I don't tell you about the high school swimming pool I would climb under the breachers with Chris, and he would kiss my hair and ears and slip fingers underneath the elastic of the lavender liker suit while I coyly teased him with hushed shrieks to stop. He would pull me slowly open and whisper sweet Bethann to my lips and threw himself back 
right as the coach called me to jump off the high dive. My water broke in the shower after I had cut my legs shaving. I smelt plums and felt Sydney's head in my fingers, barely made it to the hospital. My ex-husband missed the whole delivery because it had started to snow. He showed up two days late and took us home. My love, I don't tell you how it feels to peel my body away from his warmth at six in the morning because I couldn't sleep and there was no water left in the glass a place beside the nightstand. I was thirsty for something he would not quench. A lot of my poetry is considered confessional, but a lot of it is not actually about me, just maybe some of it. Most of it is like stories I've collected from my girlfriends. I always like to give that disclaimer. I should have given it earlier. This is called Breakup of My Landscape. On a sudden, awkward drive away from Wichita to Boulder, you point out that I'm Midwestern. A Kansas landscape puzzle without the pieces in the middle that form the interesting part of the picture, the center of the bison's eye, the wildflowers whose names I do not know, the rocky tips of the Flint Hills. I worry about the longest drought in 20 years, the out-of-control grass fires that crept across the state line from Oklahoma, spreading across the fields into Harvey and Burton, how the charred plains of my life would look black, how one grain of wheat feels in my hand and the strength it takes to hike Mount Sunflower at dawn to look out and see the crests of the Rockies and know this is as far west as we'd go, understanding this landscape as home. All right, so I'm going to read one more, and then I'm going to let Rhea do her thing. Um, this is a, actually a part one of a four-part series. I'm just going to read part one now, though. Letter to my lover. Things that I noticed around my apartment after you had left. An almost emptied beer bottle. Four pennies that had fallen from your pants pockets. Two in the hallway, two in the bathroom. Three were bad luck, so I let my Navajo two-spirit, in our lingo, we usually refer to this type of man as a transvestite, crackhead friend slash maid, $20 a week for dishes, sweeping, and mopping, lift them from the floor for me, since he is not as superstitious about these things as I am. It's my Irish blood. An empty pack of Marlboro Reds. The impression of your frame in my bed a slight red mark on my left breast. I should have told you I bruised easily. I guess I should say thank you. I forget that people never know when things end. Thank you. Hey, thank you, Jason, for keep uh, persistently asking me to do something like this. Because uh, it's out of my comfort zone. And then I was talking with Jan. I'm going to say it wrong. Uh-oh. But I've known her since the 90s, and I've watched her read. I, I, I think I always say it wrong, just like everyone says my name wrong. Uh, in the 90s, we hung out at all the same places in Wichita, Joggernaut, uh, Bohemian Bean. 
my girl band played at all those places and she was reading poetry. So this is pretty damn magical. And I named my first band after Patti Smith, Half Mad Poet. And here, here we are, we get to enjoy her poetry. So there's no such thing as time. And I'm Rhea, and I don't usually play guitar that often. I'd rather beat the hell out of drums. But thank you for inviting me, Jason. This is the second song I wrote all by myself, and it's called Sucker Punch. And it was way before that Pamela Anderson movie. <laughs> or, or a little bit before.
Thank you. The next song is called Ghost, and I wrote it probably about the same time I met you, 05, when I bought my first guitar at age 35. So this is the first song I wrote all by myself. I have to keep saying that because I've been in rock bands so long. It's hard to do everything by yourself, you know? Like get up here and play and sing. It's hard. It's actually, it's fun. I kept saying that all day. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Oh, it's so fun. all wrapped up in shiny red and gold ribbon is tied in a bow
called Water Children. Um, I think it's really timely. I wrote this poem quite a few years ago, actually. I can't even remember how long ago. That's how long ago it was. Um, and I think it's still very timely, especially for uh, women. And you'll see why in a second, I hope. Water Children. The first happened when you weren't looking, still in high school and dating a man with gray hair, the summer of mercy, and the protesters prayed the rosary outside all three of the clinics. There were no fences to protect you from their shouts. That came later. You went to the clinic the least crowded, and the nurse gave you volume for the first time. You slept and dreamt of a green apple with five seeds at the core that fell. True love the second time. But it was decided early on what would be done. Still, though, you cried for hours in the bathtub so he would not hear your wish. And when you arrived at the clinic, there was no crowd, only one young priest. The fence was only halfway up. He handed you a fake candy-striped carnation and a pamphlet on choices. The flower you tied to the rearview mirror the pamphlet you dropped to the floorboard, stepping on it as you closed the door. Your lover's hands were sweaty when you woke up, slipped over your face and through your hair. One never happened. Only discussed between each other in the dark when he would have rather slept. You let yourself go. You started to stretch slowly toward him in the bed till you touched belly button to belly button, until you became so big there was no more room for him in the bed. He moved to the couch, and then out to the hallway, and from there to the car. When you stopped growing, something was wrong with the baby. He came out blue and never grasped for breath. This time, it was a repeat lover a one less chance to make sure it didn't work. It was when he broke all your records that you realized what had happened. He didn't want to go with you to the clinic. That fence was all the way up now for complete privacy. Your friend passed her wedding ring in front of your belly. It circled counterclockwise, twice a girl. You dreamt of dancing with her and lavender fields and never waking up. This time was the last. You were in denial and waited almost too long so that it became a two-day process and involved $400 more plus the use of seaweed. Before you could make that last visit to the clinic, the fence didn't matter anymore. You had learned to block out the cries. You placed five Russian nesting dolls side by side on the mantle, named and bathed them with blessed water that a Zen monk gave you. For your water children who swim through your dreams and whisper that they love you. Since we're talking about babies, oh, thank you. It's always awkward. No one ever knows when to clap. Don't worry. Um, since we're talking about women and childbirth, I'll read this poem. It is untitled. Um, but it was my first nationally published piece. So I, whenever I read it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that day. 
I got the letter in the mail, and I was like screaming in the hallway of my apartment. Everybody came out, and they were like, what's wrong? And I was like, oh my god, I got published. And like, then they were happy. And then when the, um, I think I got 10 copies maybe, or five contributed copies. And I like ran around town and took pictures of my friend read, my friends reading it, like with my Motorola cell phone camera, and then like put them on my Facebook. And you can still find them if you're my friends. You'll see many strange people in different areas around town reading a copy of the Cimarron Review. I was really excited. I thought I was going to have this bright career from there. I, there's still time. It's fine. All right. Um, anyway, this is untitled. Stephanie was a stripper before the baby was born. The baby wrecked her body, her belly now a map of wrong turns she took coming home from California. She stands in front of the full-length mirror and cries. The custom-made leopard print bikini bottom doesn't fit over the milk-filled breasts. The bottom stretched to cover, and her legs too big to zip up the thigh-high boots. This is a girl who once tried to explain, while stoned on the beach, listening to the stars and the waves, that the problem with Kansas was the interference from the mountains, the lack of ocean nearby, all the negative energy of the world pushed into the plains. Kansas wasn't always this way, I say. Once it too was part of the ocean and flooded with beauty. What the hell does that have to do with anything? She pulls from her suitcase green three-piece outfits that I can't even begin to piece together. The baby is crying. She says that this is all he does, cry and root for her breasts, but she loves him. He is still unnamed. I try to suggest dignified names and notice his eyes are bluer than waves and so far apart. Um, this is letter to my lover too. The weather changed suddenly from fall to winter. The trees found it very confusing and forgot to change their colors. Instead, just letting their leaves drop to the ground still green. This has distracted me from what my sister is saying about the affair with a man who may or may not be in his 70s. He has bought her a car, a tennis bracelet. Now they are shopping for a house. She believes in being well taken care of. And he is not that bad looking for an older man, or at least that's what she keeps repeating. It has been five days since you left, and I have forgotten what your hands feel when they touch my back. I am wondering why the wind chills me suddenly the way it does, why it cannot comfort me. All right. Pause now. I wondered if this was going to happen, the synchronicity and the segues, and it's happening. The, it is happening. This song is called Halfway and I wrote it about leaving a man's house because it was a blizzard, and he was like, GTO, or GTFO. And um, <laughs> then, then I had a cowboy hat on. This is a great story. Uh, that cowboy hat, when I got home, that cowboy hat got wedged under the tire of my truck. My brother bought me that straw cowboy hat. 
It's like two feet of snow, that cowboy hat, because it blew off my head because it was a blizzard. That cowboy hat was there. <laughs> it did not blow to Oklahoma. So then I wrote this song, and it's very similar to her story. This, this song is called Halfway, and it was about me blaming men about, well, you can't even meet me halfway. And I've been doing that for almost 50 years, next month, 50 years. But guess what? I don't want to meet any of them halfway. <laughs> so I don't want to. Especially if I lose my favorite cowboy hat. <laughs> the night and out of your warmth straight into a freezing blizzard my cowboy
like the things I do. should hear the rock and roll version my band did it's really ridiculous it's really heavy metal they tried to turn it into a heavy metal song i did too some things you just can't make heavy metal yeah um all right this is called stealing the pumpkins it's a poem in two parts it was also nominated for um some award oh the pushcart award 3,656 seeds I've shaved from their insides, wet with sinew and so white that I could have planted them in high ground so next year he could have walked among their sensation. Instead, I washed the sin off in the kitchen sink, seasoned them with Lowry's, and roast them in the oven. We live for days this way. 
the seeds and my breast his only meal. I pull the extra shards from his teeth and beg him to eat more. The stuffed black cat you gave him meows every time he crawls by. It wakes me from my dreams. Beside me in bed, your hand between my legs, my breast under your arms, touching your mouth. It is no use to try to make sense of what happened to you in Blessed Sacrament's side yard, or why you believe that Mary cried for you when you touched her feet, clutching my rosary beads. You told me that you were asking for forgiveness, but for something more. How many trips it must have taken to bring all those pumpkins one by one to the back porch. I have imagined the hollow sound they must have made as you dropped each one, the way the orange of their skin was the same color as the sunset the moment he was born. How we knew you weren't just sleeping. And the note you will have to teach him to be poor with grace. This poem is untitled, um, but it is about um, Frida Carlo and um, who had many lovers, but um, this one is specifically about Nicholas Murray, who was a photographer. Your toes are what I think about while in the tub. The way they poke through shallow water so close to the faucet. The vivid shade of red nail polish you applied to them. My own are a chipped pink that later I will finish scratching off with my fingernail. And once it is all removed, I will be too lazy to apply a new coat. Frida, the water gives me nothing. No comfort, no solace. No reminders of dresses hanging over cities or dead birds or Empire State buildings coming out of volcanoes. Only silence. The unsettling fear of the basin's coolness and the warmth of the water embracing me. I do not see anything but the stretched lines of my skin. My eyebrows, too, grow together. And I have a slight mustache that covers only part of my lip. Both I remove with wax. There is a scar that runs from the bottom of my neck to the top of my cheek that I cover with makeup. You, Frida, made your faults things of beauty. Yesterday, my lover told me we have no meaningful conversations, that we only talk about surface things. And now I wonder, what about all the words I say to him? Wind, poverty, rivers that cannot go backwards, the water in the drain can. How the sparrow's sad song reminds me of his cello. I read your love letters to Nicholas Murray on the museum wall. And as I stood there, my lover released my hand, wandered off. Would Diego also not speak to you, forcing you to give your words to another? Perhaps I should start writing to my lover's cello. If I did, would the cello write back in low or high notes, or perhaps in harmonic chords, 
Could the cello say, I will never forget you, as Nicholas Murray said to you? We will all eventually be forgotten. If we are lucky, perhaps someone will find our love letters, give us redemption, frame them and place them on a wall, or hold them in their hands and read them over and over again. But for now, I will just whisper, love, take my hand. Let me not be forgotten. Thank you. All right, I have two more. Um, this one is called Elegy for My Lover Who Was Lost at Sea. Often I can hear your cries, slow as the ocean tides and so shallow. And because I have not cut my hair in years, it has grown gray as well bones, heavy with grief, smells of water mist, and it's so heavy that I miss your hands lifting its burdens off my shoulders. Yesterday, I bought a clock that only keeps time backwards, hoping that it could bring me back to you and the days before you walked out into the ocean's long song and turned the tide to return your bones from the sea to my waiting hands. actually part of my newer collection, yet untitled. My neighbor lies about things. One, the flowers in the garden are red, but she insists that they are purple in the light. Bees do not sting her, though I have helped her remove the stinger from her foot not once, but twice this summer. She told me her lover comes through the back window, but only on nights when storm clouds roll through and the whole world is still. Two. My neighbor is screaming about the machine in her head again and wandering around the yard in wet jeans that stick to her thighs because she has pissed herself again from all the cheap vodka she drinks when she thinks no one is watching. I ask her what the machine in her head sounds like. Does it sound more like a washing machine or the motor of a car idling in the driveway? I gently pull her into the house, and as I clean her up and place her in bed, she says the machine is actually the voice of God asking for forgiveness. Three. My neighbor tends to her vegetable garden at night because she drinks so much, she can't actually sleep. She tells me that the last time she slept was before her baby James died. He was born at home and seemed healthy, with plump, rosy, round cheeks and the smallest hands I had ever seen. But a few weeks later, he stopped nursing. Then he stopped crying, and then he stopped moving. She buried his body in the garden, but now she can't remember where he is. He could be between the tomatoes or the radishes, but she thinks most likely he is by the sweet pea vines. One evening, my neighbor destroys her garden. 
When I ask why, she stares blankly at me and walks away. Okay, this song I wrote called Telling Fortunes. Soon after, I became a certified angel card reader. I'd love to read your cards sometime. But the fortune teller versus angel card readings, I don't know. So I wrote this song. It isn't what she told me, but that's what happened. I like this song better than what she told me. Teller said you'd bring me down. Well, my friend's been telling me the whole year round. I think that we should leave it alone. We got a
not what she said. Okay, I wrote a happy song once, and uh, it's the next song coming up on the list. It was called Pretty Baby, and it's real sweet and real happy. <laughs> Probably until the very end. But hey, I wrote a happy song. Hey, thank you again for inviting me. This song's called Pretty Baby, and he was pretty. <laughs> front door Sing me a song Pretty baby Make him believe that there is more Gather in a field Gather by the river Hands in the fire Of a rock and roll Inspired dream Um, so these poems are actually the next poem I'm going to read, which is also entitled, is a, a little bit about what was going on when she was diagnosed. Sort of. Last night, Sid brought home a small dying rabbit that the dog had found while out on their nightly walk around the block. The dog pulled it from under the lilac bush threw it up in the air, and caught it mid-fall. As Sid tried to grab the rabbit from the dog's mouth, 
The dog growled at him for the first time. The poor rabbit, barely breathing, one eye full of blood, and Sid's own eyes too full of tears. It was the first time he touched death, and he held it in his hands with such tenderness. We buried the rabbit under the kitchen windows and planted sunflowers over its body, but we didn't dig the hole deep enough, and the heavy rain last night washed its body up to the surface. This morning, the damned dog found the grave, tore the rabbit's body to pieces, and as I pick up the fur from the yard, you called with your test results. Sunflowers take 100 days to sprout and can reach 18 feet in height. Soon, the ones under the window will be taller and sturdier than Sid's six-foot frame, and even in the hard, Kansas winds won't fall over. I want to believe you will see them too, but we both know that this is unlikely. Death has surrounded us the last few years. First, it was Christopher hidden away in his father's basement. Three days earlier, he had spent the longest stretch of sobriety in his life, and we were all so proud. Then there was Anne-Marie, whose liver finally just gave out. Karen's sudden stroke, Tanya's murder. Craig jumped from the roof of his apartment. Angie hanged herself. But the saddest death is the one we cannot talk about, the one we are watching slowly float closer and closer and closer. I'm an only child, so it was um, my mom's death was really shocking um, and very sudden. That's actually um, part one of a piece I'm working on called 41 Days, which is the 41 days from her diagnosis to her death um, because she did not have health insurance and we live in Kansas. So it took 30 days for her to get chemo and she died 11 days later. So it's been a, it's been a really rough patch. So I have no family. She was my family. So, but this is actually about my father. This is called Ghost Slip Through at Strange Moments. To prove my own existence, I blink my eyes twice in the bright morning sun, once for you, then once for me. I gather up the folds of my skirt to remember that movement must happen. I walk in mud after first snow has melted to fill the weakness of ground beneath my feet. To prove my father's existence requires complex math. For how old my mother was when he left, I must pull down the mason jar that holds the tears she shed and subtract a year for every inch of salt water that has evaporated. A year added for the prostitute he loved in San Antonio before he stole his El Camino and ran to Mexico. If my father had brought me home in that car, I would be able to add two more days, but my mother walked home through March rain, carried me close to her chest. 
For that, I must erase the days, months, and years. Start again. When you speak of your father, it seems so simple. He died four days after you turned 10. 10 multiplied by 365 plus 6, two days added for leap year, equals 3,656 days. I wonder how you know your memories are real. They seem real on those silent evenings when you feel overly nostalgic and play the childhood home movies. We sit together in the cross light of evening in quiet belief as he moves across the screen. Concrete floors and cold dance halls was how my mother started all stories of him. If the floor was concrete, he was preaching about predestination in the middle of a break room of some temp job. If it began with, the dance hall was cold, she is explaining the night they met in 1970. I have no pictures of him, just shadowy memories of hands holding me high around the waist into sky, touching my hair, and wondering if that was how the wind and clouds felt when they touched. When I wake in the night through the moonlight, I reach over and touch your arm. I pull you in and count your breaths. One, two, three. Some, my songs are a little bit uh, more, that's, that, that's heavy to follow, that stuff. And she was talking about my girl, Karen. Are you kidding me? So anyway, this song is called What If Somebody Was Impersonating a Rock Star That I Really Love. I think I got catfished. But they were like, oh, let's, we want to do stuff with your band and like, and then I was like, yeah. And then when I told my band about it, before I knew I was being catfished, they said, well, we just want new teeth. So <laughs> then when I figured out it wasn't the rock star, I was somebody pretending. And then I wrote this song because I was, I was angry. And actually, I'm not that angry. I love. So this song is called What If. What if I was someone you'd like to meet? What if I threw roses down at your feet? What if I got you a new set of
the roses down at our feet. Thank you. The next song was from a dream I had where I went to New Orleans. I've never been there. I've been a lot of places. I haven't been there. So I wrote this song called The Haunting about a dream I had. So now I need to go there. I'm Actually, I'm too chicken shit to go there. I went to Memphis twice and got just freaked the hell out from all the history and the ghosts and the darkness and, you know, Dr. King and... Buck, Jeff Buckley, and I was walking around there going, I'm ready to go back to Kansas. <laughs> so this song's called The Haunting, only about a dream.
lesser toy things No cages and no monsters We are set free So this is a title piece from my book, A Short History of Our Love. Secrecy and the chime of the cathedral bells from across the street have kept us bound tight. We hide from the sun in a cave of sheets, climb out only to drink, eat, and piss. We have stopped bathing and keep the fans on high Every hour is shorter. We lie about the time in a vain hope that summer might last. Seagulls mate for life. So do swans, mandarin ducks, and doves. But we have not learned the merit of how to hold on through dark clouds and sleet. Re-release when we can feel the breath against our bodies, the moment first snow falls. We know no other way, as much history as genetics. My sister knew you would come back, called late in the night to tell me she dreamt of you trying to fish for salmon that were spying, and the clouds reminded you of home and heat. The days of light agonizing in Alaska and you missed the dogwood trees was all you said when you turned the key to the lock that I had promised to change. I was not surprised to feel your arms wrap tight around my waist or hear whispered promises that you will stay. It is the same wish your wife made last night with her eyelash, the one I made just now against the clasp of this necklace. Thank you. This is another um, poem from the new book I'm writing. Um, it's a poem in four parts. It's not titled. One, when I called this morning to check on you, you explained between painful breaths that the nurse had finally turned on the radio and that you heard the world's oldest flute was found last week in a cave somewhere in Germany. 35,000 years old and made of bird bone so thin only the most delicate hands could play it. I've stopped listening to music because of the heat and the constant sickness of late summer has become too much. And it has brought with it a drought that's lasted so long the Arkansas River has begun to pull away from the land I can see the bottom of the riverbank from the, the riverbed from the bank. 
I spend most of my time counting the cracks, wondering if you remembered the time I started to drown beneath the brown water and how you saved me and then yelled that I wasn't to go so close to the edge again. Three. I asked if the feeding tube you had refused for days had finally been pushed into you. And you tell me that house sparrows were first brought over from England and considered a pest from the beginning. Because some believe that the sparrow was at fault for the soldiers finding Jesus in the Garden of Galilee. Sparrows sing a song that the wind can easily carry because it is light and full of air. I ask again if I should come to the hospital and bring you home. While you wonder out loud if music played on a flute from the bone of a bird sounds like a sparrow's song. Four, walking into the hospital for the last time I see a wounded sparrow, one wing dragging on the ground and its song so low and strangely lost that I record it on my phone for you to see. But you are not awake, so I sit beside you and hold your delicate hands. Thank you. As you can see, I write a lot of poems about Kansas and the Arkansas River, because I actually um, grew up on the Arkansas River, but we don't have that problem now. My mother carried me home through March rain, held me close to her chest. My cries like a sparrow's wings beating backwards, so she did not notice that only the left hand of the moon was lit or that the Arkansas River was overflowing. She found only the note from my father when she opened the door. If you can see God for only a second, how can you say no? I lean up against the maps of Africa in the hallway. I curve and lay my head against your chest and listen to the unevenness of your heart. My father asked my mother to marry him only once on their second date after he had finished a night shift at the foundry and she was on her way to work the breakfast rush at the nifty kitchen. Inside the El Matador, the pissed drunk bar across the street from her studio apartment, they sat at the front table, the one light first touches and quietly looked down at their hands. She rose from the table her red hair streamed down her back and weaved smoke as she walked out. The rain hasn't stopped. You stand entirely quiet as I touch your shoulder. Our child's wings have yet to beat. This is the last one. It's very short. You have to pay attention. It's called Letter to My Lover 4. I am not wishing for you back. I am pretending you are dead. Thank you. I I am only going to do one more song because that's my own last original. So, 
I want to do covers all night. I could play all night, but we're not doing that. This song, um, my rock band has been calling me the Hammer Queen for like at least 10 years. So in the paper, there was a little snippet where this lady went to her boyfriend's house demanding a wedding ring. And then she started smashing his door in and with the hammer. And then she smashed his coffee table. And then she started trying to smash on him. I was like, I think we found the real hammer queen. <laughs> so I went home and wrote this song. And disclaimer, like she was saying earlier, I sold my wedding ring for $21 in the 90s. So this song is not about me. Right? That's what she was saying earlier. Some things you read in the newspaper and you write a song. I do. I kind of like the story, you know? It's like, give the girl a ring or what?
Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Chandra. Thank you, everybody. Be sure to uh, say thank you to Brian if he's around, everybody. Hang out. There's drinks and chill. Get to know people. Talk. Thanks for coming out. This episode, Outrider Live, Words and Music 3, was recorded in front of a live audience. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us and give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or at jquinmalott.podbean.com.